Good morning, church. Here we are again. You get heads two weeks in a row. I don't know if I can handle heads two weeks in a row. But here we are. Let's pray for the Lord's grace. Father, um, we thank you for this moment. Uh, We thank you for your word. Pray even now, Lord, help me to uh, share your word and preach your word with great clarity, um, with humility, and with um, the power of your spirit pouring out of me this morning, O Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, We're continuing in our study once again through uh, Philippians this morning, as we're coming off the hills of that heavy text from last week, as we looked at the humility of the dissension of Christ coming to us. Um, And we said that his coming to us was a, a matter of him as God coming to us as a humble servant, an act that we said was the greatest act of humility known to man, a humility church that serves for us as a model, a model for what our lives should look like as believers, as it leads us to walk in a manner or a way that we are called to live in by our very God, a way that Paul says uh, first begins with our thinking as we take on the mind of Christ, looking at how uh, a servant heart and spirit leads us to have uh, understanding and compassion like his. Compassion that we said leads us to other-centered thinking and other-centered thinking that leads us to other-centered living. In the same way, church, that we said the mind of Christ led Christ to live as his life displayed more of a concern for our salvation than his own comfort, a concern that brought him to us, knowing that he would suffer greatly and die in our place. And though he did suffer, church, we learned that his suffering did not go unrewarded as we learn that he was given the highest reward and that he was given the highest place in heaven and had bestowed upon him a name above all names. And we learn that if we, too, have this mind that leads us to live a life like his through faith in him, that in the end he promises that we, too, will have a great reward. He promises that we would be those who would share with him in his glory. And as we left that great text last week, church, I have to be honest, it left me in great thought. As I was left thinking and asking, how is it that as believers, knowing the great truths of Christ's humility, knowing all he did for us, how could anyone truly believe this and then go out and do some of the sinful things that we have seen from Christians throughout history? How is it that those who claim to know him could treat men and women who have the Imago Dei 
as if they were not deserving of dignity and value. And even as I'm in the middle of studying church history and Baptist history, I kept saying to myself, church, how could these men who were thinking through the right mode of baptism and trying to figure out who should be baptized and writing statements of faith and planting churches while facing persecution be the same men who were enslaving people and treating them as subhuman? I found myself, church, Asking these questions over and over and over again. Asking, how, Lord? How can they truly understand that text and live the way that they did? Great theologians who knew the text in and out, sinning against each other, church, and sinning against God, denying the truths of his scripture and ruining the witness of his church. All that just kept running through my mind. And as I thought about all of that church, as I sat for a while thinking about all that they did, I had a moment of clarity. It was in that moment that God quickly humbled me as he showed me how easy it was for me to study that text, to preach that text, and then think to myself, this text is so clear. How could they claim to know it so well and yet act so sinfully? And in that moment, God showed me the self-righteous posture that I had taken on. Self-righteousness, church, that crept in so easily as I was led to look at the sins of everyone else rather than letting those great truths of Christ lead me to him in worship. Letting it lead me to look at my own heart and the brokenness of my own actions, pleading with the Lord for mercy over my own sins. In that moment, the Lord showed me, church. He gave me the answer to my own question by showing me the sinfulness of my own heart. Showed me how easy it is to get into a place where we can feel as though we have wrapped our minds around God's word, taking a posture of pride and self exaltation, a posture that many have stood in throughout the history of the church. Many who have let self-righteousness lead them to grave sins, a self-righteous posture that has led many to feel the need to correct everyone else using the word of God while never allowing the word of God to search and correct themselves, a searching that could then lead them to not only think right about God's word, but also live as a true witness of it. I realized, church, that the answer to my questioning was not foreign to God, but that it was something that as he gave Paul that great text, he anticipated. He knew that we would be inclined to think too highly of ourselves, to think now we've got it. And he knows that we are so easy to point out the speck in another's eye before dealing with the plank in ours. And knowing that about us, church, 
he inspired Paul to follow that great story of redemption by giving us practical instructions of how to apply that very text to our lives. And this is what Paul gives us, church, in the instructions in verses 12 through 18 as he presents it to us, church, and sort of like a sandwich. You with me? I saw some confusion out there. He begins by layering that sandwich church in verse uh, 12a by telling us what to do as he reminds and encourages the Philippian church and us to continue in the ways that they have learned, ways that he taught them as he was with them. He calls them church beloved, and he reminds them of the love that they shared in when they were all together, helping them to see that the fellowship that they had, uh, that they shared in, was a result of Christ working in them. And he reminded them to continue in that way, to continue in the obedience that they had when he was with them, though he is absent from them. Therefore, he says, church, pursue these ways so that you might continue to share in the love and the fellowship that we enjoyed together with each other. And then he, he closes that sandwich in verses 16 through 18. He completes the last layer of it by telling them why they should continue in this way. He reminds them of why he is encouraging them to walk in this way and to do these things. He says, so that the energy and time and sacrifice that I spent with you would not be in vain. He says, do this, remembering, church, our great partnership in the gospel, so that in the end, it will be a day of rejoicing with each other together in glory. He says, even now, this is why I am being poured out as a drink offering. This is the reason why I am in prison and facing possible death because of this work that I have done in my life as God's great missionary going from place to place to preach this gospel to the church, calling out other partners and people to follow God and to follow in his way together as we both share in the great reward of finishing the race faithfully, faithfully obedient to God and his word in the midst of a broken world so that we, like Christ, would receive the great reward of carrying out the mission of God. And church, that mission is the very meat that sits in between those two layers. As Paul gives us the meat of this scripture through three commands that show us how to apply the gospel truths to our lives. Three commands that help us to understand how to respond to this great revelation of Christ as we fight to die to self and make Christ known commands that we should always be working to pursue as they help to drive us to a posture of worship rather than a posture of self-righteousness. 
And so Paul begins by giving us the command, firstly, to pursue the presence of God. Paul says in verse 12b, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Paul jumps right in telling us before anything to let our understanding of the reality of Christ coming to us drive us to an action that presses towards him, an action that he says works out or brings about salvation. Now, let me stop because I know that many of us are already asking questions in our mind, with the first being Paul, how is it that we work out or bring about salvation when salvation comes through faith in Christ, not by works? And then why would Paul, of all people, tell the Philippian church to work out their salvation as if it's something that we can do in and of ourselves? Matter of fact, Paul... Aren't you talking to the church? Don't they already have salvation? Why would you tell them to work towards or work out salvation? And if you are trying to lead them from this posture of self-righteousness, Paul, then why would you tell them to work to gain anything? I think the best way, church to help us to understand what Paul is saying here and to answer those very questions is first to begin by telling you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying to pursue a work in you that makes you right with God or that justifies you, church. He is not saying pursue this workspace righteousness where you are saved by your works, church. But what Paul is saying It's let this great revelation of Christ, of all all that he has done for us that has just been revealed to us and his coming to us in humility and obedience produce in us actions that lead us to humility and obedience. Humility and obedience that is produced in you from a reverencing of him. This is why Paul says, church, do this with fear and trembling so that your actions are not something that you are trying to produce in and of yourself, but that it would be something that is produced and worked in you as you are gazing at him. Are y'all with me, church? As you think about what it really took for him to come to us, Paul is saying, let that great thought in your mind produce in you an awe and a reverent fear that leads you to a sacrificial living that causes you to want to live out this life as a life of service to him. A service that causes you to obediently carry out his mission much in the same way that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord, a vision that brought about both awe and reverential fear for God, church. 
as he tells us in verse one of the great awe, verses one through three of the great awe of God. Isaiah describes this all church as a temple where the Lord was there and he was high and lifted up where he was dressed in a robe that that Isaiah said filled the temple and the angels was all around him shouting praises and giving him glory. And then quickly, Isaiah moves to verses four through five, where we get a vision of great fear as Isaiah quickly realizes that he is in the presence of the Lord and that he has been gazing on the Lord as one who is unclean or, as he says, as one with unclean lips. And immediately, dread falls upon him as the voice of the Lord, church, was so powerful that it shook the foundations of the temple. And Isaiah says, smoke filled the room. And Isaiah realizes that what is owed to him as one who is unclean before the presence of God is immediate death. And as he realizes this, he yells out, woe is me, meaning I'm a dead man. And as the glory of God revealed to him the great weight and nature of his condition as one who is unclean before God, he stood there thinking, I am going to die. And it was like in an instant, before he dropped dead, we get verses six through seven. As the Lord sends an angel to fly to him with a hot burning coal that he touches to his mouth and immediately in the midst of the presence of this great, holy, all-powerful, dreadful, fearful God, Isaiah finds the love and beauty of God's great grace and mercy as he was told that his guilt has been taken away and that his sins has been atoned for. He has been made clean in the presence of the Lord. And immediately now he hears the Lord's voice with great clarity, church. That same voice that brought great dread and fear now brought with it great peace. As the Lord lays before Isaiah a task, he says, we need one to go to the world to tell the world about us and about themselves. We need one who is willing to go to be a witness of this great gospel to the world, a witness who tells of a God who makes those who are unclean clean. And without hesitation, Isaiah cries out, send me, I'll go. As his reverence, For this merciful, loving God led him to a posture of gratitude, a posture of humility and obedience that produced in him a willingness to carry out the great mission of God. And this church is what Paul is reminding us of as he calls for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He is saying that we, like Isaiah, have just witnessed the glory of the God of God in this passage of God coming 
to us through the great vision that Paul painted for us. Let our response be much like Isaiah as well. Let us first seek, see the great weight of our sin as we think about the great chasm that Christ crossed to come to us. The chasm that was carved out by the great depths of our sin. And as we think on those things, Paul says, let the realization of your life and the depths of your heart before anything lead you to fall at his feet in fear and trembling as you meditate on his great holiness, realizing the huge cost of your sin. Let it all begin to permeate inside of you so that your response to Christ would be without hesitation, a commitment to follow in his ways, a commitment to work to renew your mind, church, a renewing that comes as a result of reverencing him so that that great humility of Christ would lead you to a posture of humility in you as you realize the grace and mercy of our great God. The grace and our ability to have minds and uh, uh, thoughts that can understand his word, that can understand his great character and, and his heart and mercy in justifying and making clean those who declare treason against him. Grace and mercy that led our great Lord to, to treat us and deal with us like children rather than condemning us like enemies. Paul reminds us to think on these things he is saying, before you move to the judgment of everyone else thinking, how could they first let it drive you to think, how could I? So that the great cross of Christ would always lead us to have an attitude and posture of reverence, a posture that would continually drive us to grow, to be more like him working out our great salvation as our growing like him preserves the salvation that he has provided for us reminding us church that there was no good in us that caused us to believe or understand but that any insight or reason or power that we have to walk in his ways is not a work of our own but of him a work that he does inside of us to will and to work for his great pleasure, as Paul states in verse 13. A work that he does in us to bring about his desires and action in us. A work that should lead us to ask ourselves, church, if, if he is truly the one who is driving to will and to work in us in this way, then how can we respond by taking credit for or pointing fingers at others when the revealing and the understanding of Christ's great work in us and through us did not come from ourselves, uh, but from him as God? Paul says a right response, church, is to let the great truths of God constantly drop you 
to your knees, reverently rejoicing as he leads our hearts, leading us to follow in his perfect ways that he has laid before us, ways that should lead us to respond much like the psalmist in Psalm 16 as he rejoices in verse 7, saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Why? Because you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, he says, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist exemplifies for us, church, this this great posture of gratitude, a joy that is within him as he realizes and reflects on the Lord's preserving or keeping him as he escapes from eternal death, or as he says, from seeing corruption, preservation that comes by the path of life being presented before him. That same path of life, church, that God placed before us in Christ, as he causes us to walk down that path, to walk in the ways of Christ through the power of his spirit, A walk in a way that much like the psalmist should bring us great joy and pleasure. Pleasure that comes from knowing not only did God declare us as righteous, but he also provides for us a path of righteousness to walk in. Therefore, the psalmist says, and Paul says, exhort the Lord and worship him. Encourage Uh, He encourages us to see him high and lifted up, to sing praises proclaiming his great name and glory as his great glory causes us to walk in his perfect ways. Therefore, work out your own salvation with great, uh, uh, with fear and trembling. This is the same thing that we see uh, uh, when the- theologian John Owen speaks uh, as he reflects on the glory of God, where he says it is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek them diligently, beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, he says, I desire to live and die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all of my thoughts and desires, and the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and will become more and more crucified to this world. Owens gives us the same pursuit of presence as Paul, 
as he encourages us to allow the glory of Christ to behold us, that the work of our salvation might be a work of abiding in him as he works in us obedience to his ways and his word. Are y'all following me this morning, church? Okay, I just wanted to check and make sure. A work that is of the Spirit as he works a glory in us. A glory that would put the very glories of this world to shame. Causing us to mortify the things of our flesh. Crucifying the world's desires in us. So that the beauty, church, of our justification might lead to the righteousness of our sanctification as God carries out the work of making us into the beautiful glory of his son through our reverential reflecting on his great humility. Making our work a work of worship and beholding rather than a selfish, right, self-righteous work of looking to our own selves. And so Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that your abiding in him might keep you and deliver you as you run after reconciliation. Paul says, beginning in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, let your abiding and fixation on Christ lead you to lives that will become a work of devotion to him. So that we might be always working unto the Lord with glad hearts. This is especially needed, church, for the work of the ministry as your humility will call you to give yourself to people, people who will hurt you. This is especially hard for pastors, church, but it's also hard for brothers and sisters in Christ because the fact of the matter is that we are all still sinners, church. And we are still sinners fighting against our selfish ways and pride. And we are all at different uh, levels and places in that walk against fighting our sin, which means there will be times when hurt or frustration in our heart will lead us to take our eyes off Christ and place it on our own feelings. Times where our feelings will truly fight to lead the desires of our heart, a leading that many times causes in us grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and disputing that displays a way that is opposite of the way of Christ as it, as it takes our eyes off of his patience and long-suffering with us. Patience and long-suffering that should drive us not to see our brothers and sisters in their sin, but should drive us to see them through the same lens that Christ sees them through. Fighting to see what God has declared them to be rather than seeing them in their sin. 
This doesn't mean, church, that we, we ignore sin, but it does mean that we lovingly correct sin, church, but we don't hold those sins against them. It doesn't mean that we gossip behind their backs or talk about them, harboring sins that then drive us to anger and frustration against them. But we must let our reverence to Christ lead us to always seek to reconcile with those who sin against us. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that part of the, the ministry of reconciliation is that we no longer regard each other according to the flesh. And part of regarding each other in that way, uh, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, is that we no longer count their trespasses against them. This means that those who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation as we look to Christ must remember how he deals with us as we deal with each other. Therefore, because he no longer regards us according to the flesh, we no longer regard them according to the flesh. And because he no longer are counting their trespasses against us, we no longer count each other's trespasses against each other. Our gaze on Christ should lead us to lovingly forgive each other as we are sinned against, always pursuing a posture of forgiveness. Because if we don't, church, we run the risk of holding these things in our heart and holding hurt and frustration in your heart does more damage to you than it does to anyone else. As it stifles your walk and maturity in Christ, preventing you from growing to become like him, church, and leads us to walk in bitterness and frustration. Bitterness and frustration that Paul says causes body uh, division in the body as it divides our relationships, our marriages, and our homes. This is why Paul says a little leaven can ruin the whole lump because it only takes the holding onto of a small amount of bitterness to cause a major amount of sin in our hearts. Sin that causes all kinds of grumbling and disputes. This is what we're told, church, in Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 15, where, Paul, where the writer of Hebrews, y'all yeah, yeah, ain't going to get me this morning. <laughs> where he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. The writer of Hebrews says, let no one amongst us continue in this way because it only takes a small root of bitterness to cause all kinds of grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining that can cause some to fail to obtain the grace 
of God. Therefore, we're called to forgive, church, so that we might flee bitterness and pursue holiness. Or as Paul says in verse 15, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul uses, church, specific language here to remind the church of the grumbling and complaining of Israel in the wilderness. Grumbling and complaining that kept them from entering into the promise and obtaining the grace of God. Language that was used by Moses as he writes about it and uh, writes about Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verses 4 through 5, where he says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is warning the church to cut off any root of bitterness among them before that root takes hold and drives the whole flock to murmuring and complaining much in the same way that uh, that it took root in Israel driving them away from God to become a corrupt and twisted generation, a people who have dealt corruptly with God as they eventually became those who rejected our great Lord as he came to them, those who nailed him, church, to the very cross that we are speaking of treating our great rock of salvation with great contempt as he came to save this crooked and twisted generation. Paul says, heed this great warning, church, and follow in the ways of Christ that we might be preserved through a constant purifying of our hearts so that instead of becoming like a crooked and twisted generation, we might, like he said in verse 15b, shine as great beams of light before the very dark world that we are in. As our forgiveness and repentance leads to a sanctifying work in us, church, for the glory of God and for our good, as God shapes us into those who are worthy of his great kingdom, preparing us to take a place alongside him in glory, as those who are pure and righteous and and blameless, those running hard after reconciliation, not holding on to the sins committed against us, but rather, as Paul says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life as we guard the gospel of Christ in our hearts, church. In other words, we pursue his perfect ways by fixing our attention on him and his perfect word. Let us hold fast to the glory that we see in his great gospel. Church, let us recount the wonderful deeds as we hold on to the perfect law of the Lord, seeking his holy word. 
Let us look at it and let it guide us and direct us turning back to him in times when we get weary, reminding us of his perfect ways, his perfect ways, church, that leads us to a life and walk of repentance as we seek the wisdom of his word in the midst of a confusing world. Wisdom that points us to understanding and and knowing the character of God, church, as the brokenness of our world works to convince us otherwise, reminding us of his loving kindness and patience towards us so that the posture of our hearts might lead us to walk in his wonderful precepts. A walk that brings about rejoicing together as a holy community of God seeking to be pure and blameless as the word of God gives us all understanding. Understanding, church, that puts us all on one accord as we all come together in his presence, reverencing him, striving side by side, pressing towards his holy great glory, and gospel together, serving as a true witness for his righteousness, as his righteousness serves our great, serves as our great discernment, a discernment that should cause us to search ourselves, recognizing by his word our presumptuous sins and hidden faults so that they might not have control over us, but so that we might be controlled by his great love and his great word as we keep his word on our lips and meditate on his word in our hearts and confess our sins to each other so that when we come to him in glory, we might be presented as acceptable to our great God and Lord in his sight. Receiving our great reward together as partners in his great gospel mission. Can you imagine, church? Can you imagine if we all lived in this way, holding fast to his great gospel, led by the word of God. Can you imagine what the beauty of our community would look like? It would not only look glorious to the world, but can you imagine what the fellowship would look like as we all come in together, singing from hearts that are penetrated by the word of God in this way? Pursuing him with everything that we have in us as our lives become a living sacrifice to him. A sweet smelling fragrance unto our God, church. Can you imagine what he would do with this body of people if we all presented ourselves to him in this way? He could use us, church, as a means of revival in our city in our state, in our nation, as a true means of reconciliation and restoration as as we watch God move through our celebration of him, church. Don't you long to see revival like this? 
as we get a glimpse of what it will be like in his great glorious kingdom in heaven. Because this is what Paul is encouraging us to do today. This is how he is encouraging us to live as those who Jesus himself calls citizens of heaven. Those called to be the salt of the earth and a light of the world. A city, he says, uh, set on a hill that cannot be hidden as we shine our lights before others. Paul says, do these things that you might pursue that great glory together in this way. Not as individuals, church, but as a community of people seeking the justice and righteousness of God with one another as partners in his great gospel mission that we might be brought to completion together at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen, church. Let us pray.